Uh, good morning. Our passage today is Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There are two main points that I want us to focus on today, and of course they'll have sub-points. So if you're a uh, writer, a follower longer, um, follow along with me. The first point comes from Romans 1.20, and it's namely this, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God is God alone, the only true God, and there is no other God before Him, after Him, beside Him, He is God, a God alone. So the first point from the verse is this. How has God been showing humanity this truth from the very beginning of time? This is what we would call general revelation. How has he shown us all that he alone is God and there is no other through his creation, through his acts of creation? The second point I want us to see is how God has chosen to specially show mankind that he alone is God and there is no other through the marvelous redemptive work of his Son, Jesus, which, of course, we read about in his word, God's word, and through Jesus Christ himself. That's what we call special revelation. Uh, Charles Spurgeon is my, one of my favorite pastors of all time. He's the prince of preachers, uh, and I'm always indebted to him. I'm always inspired by him, and so bits and pieces of this outline uh, I wanna, uh, I've, I've borrowed from him and paraphrased a little bit, um, so I want to give credit where credit is due. I chose this verse because I think With the way 2019 has been going for me personally, and probably for all of you, we desperately need the comfort that is found in this one little verse. We need to be reminded that God is God alone, and there is no other. And by turning to Him alone, we can have peace, comfort, endless, supreme joy in the midst of life's troubles. So with this in mind, let's, let's jump right in. I want to take you back. I want to take you back to the dawn of time, even before that, to time immemorial. Before anything was made or created, there is God. He's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons of one substance, power, eternity, dwelling in perfect union with one another. There's no galaxies, no planets, no trees, no animals, nothing but the perfectly holy triune God existing in perfect fellowship and love with himself. This is hard for us to imagine because here we are in 2019, so far removed from us here on April 7th, that to even begin to fathom what this looked like is impossible. And yet, in eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit were there. And in the mind of God, in time immemorial, all those eons ago, there was already everything that has been made and will be made in the mind of God. The blueprints for the Milky Way galaxy was already there, along with the Great Barrier Reef and the Grand Canyon and every species of animal and every form of plant life. Every molecule, every mineral, every language, every name, every song, every taste, every feel, every color, all of it was in God's mind. You were there as well, as was I, as was the knowledge of our sin, as was the the need that we would have for a savior, the plan of redemption, the glorious plan, the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, from before the world, all of that was in God's mind. The hairs on your head, I'm not sure if you knew this, but they were there in God's mind. He had them numbered. Your hairdresser, your barber, 
He was already thought of that. He already knew about that. The hair products that you would need to take care of those numbered hairs, he had that in, in place. The inventions, the company, the manufacturer. It's not to mention your fingernails, your blood pressure, your teeth, your birthmarks, freckles, arteries. All of this God had in his mind, and he knew what you would need to take care of them. The human genome, the hydrological cycle, how many flaps a hummingbird has to take to stay afloat. Music, colors, the way our eyes would see it, the way our ears would hear it. Planets, stars, sea creatures so deep underwater that their bodies can, can withstand the pressure. This is the God who created dinosaurs. Math, equations, master artist. He makes billions of snowflakes a year, each one unique, and he shatters them to the ground, and only he knows about it. Only he knows how glorious your fingerprint is. This is the creator of the universe. This is the God who made everything out of nothing, ex nihilo. He spoke, and all of these glorious things came into being. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the Holy One who dwells in unapproachable light. The Lord alone is an all-consuming fire. And yet, and yet, and yet, this God who is so far above us, so far removed from us in 2019 with how amazing and glorious he is, has made himself known. This God has chose, chosen to make himself known and to grab a people for himself and to call those who were once dead alive and to call those who were once far off his children. This is the God who we worship. And this God has been teaching us, he's been teaching mankind that he alone is God and there is no other since the foundation of the world. How so? How so? Well, first he makes himself known to the false gods of this world and the idolaters that worship him. John Calvin, this theologian John Calvin, maybe you've heard of him, he says this. He says, the human heart is an idol factory. And since the creation of the world, mankind has been pumping out these idols. We're really good at it. Carvings, images, false gods to worship. We love it. We love it. Here in our text today and elsewhere in the Bible, God makes the claim of absolute authority. He says, I am God and there is no other. That means no idols, no carvings, no images, only Yahweh, only God. There is no other. Those are, those are foolishness. You'll remember Satan in the garden in Genesis 3. He attacks this truth. He makes the argument that mankind can actually be like God. Ever since then, we as sinful humans have been searching for something other to worship, anything to fill that God-shaped hole in our lives. We, we seek after idols. We seek after false gods to worship. In our foolishness, we even, we even have the audacity to make our own gods. Instead of worshiping the one God who made us in his image, we fashion gods made in our image, which are no gods at all. The ancient Greeks and Romans, they were masters at idolatry. They were masters of this. They invented entire pantheons of God. You had Zeus and Hades and Poseidon. But I ask you, where are the singers and the poets for Zeus and Hades and Poseidon? Where are, are, are the poets for these forgotten gods? Where are the hymns and ballads? Do we, do we have a church down the street for Zeus where they're worshiping right now? Or what of the Baals and the Dagons of the Bible to which nations would slaughter their own children and worship to? Did the Philistine statue of Dagon bow to the ark of God in the Bible? Yes. Even the fire worshipers have had their bonfires extinguished. Are there Asherah poles in your neighborhoods right now? Where are the gods now? The answer is, of course, in museums. 
where people will go and the kids will stick their gum on the back of the statues and people will take a selfie with these gods, these so-called gods. That's where they're at. Or maybe they're underground, buried, lifeless, dormant. Even, even the animals that creep and crawl, the worms, they won't worship these foolish gods that lie buried. What about the gods of Egypt? We've seen for the past few months the foolishness of the gods of Egypt and how God made a mockery of them through the ten plagues. Each god just mocking them. Ra, Osiris, Isis, all are reduced now to mere faded paintings on aging walls. Their temples are tourist attractions. And their relics are looted and sold to the highest bidder. These are the gods of ancient Egypt. I talked not long ago about the Hindu people when I went over to London and how they still uh, will pour milk to Vishnu or, or, or offer food to Ganesh. They, they worship these, these false idols. They, they offer food and milk to these statues which are worthless. And yet, we know without a doubt that one day there will come a day when all those statues lie trampled underfoot. They will lie trampled underfoot because Colossians 2.15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities of this world, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Oh, I pray for our Hindu brothers and sisters who will come out of that, who will come out of that foolishness, and they will look at their statues, they will look at their idols, and they will burn them, they will destroy them, and say, No, there's one God. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. What about the other religions that still exist today? The, the prominent ones, we think of the Buddhists or the Muslims or the Mormons. All of these as well have ultimately been triumphed over at the cross. I want you to think of this. Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, all of these men have graves that are filled with corpses. There's only one religion in this entire world whose founder and author has an empty tomb, which we're going to celebrate not too long from now. Who is right now answering the prayers of his people? He's the prophet, the priest, and the king. He's right now comforting his people. He's calling for every tribe, every tongue, every nation to come to him. And they need only but turn to be saved. They need only but turn and look to him to be saved. The Bible says the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. God is God alone, and there is no other. Secondly, God has made himself known as the one true God to both rulers, kings, and empires. If you read the entirety of chapter 45, which I highly recommend, it's fantastic. The context of verse 22 is in regards to a prophecy about Cyrus the Great. Now, Cyrus the Great was the first king of Persia, and to this day, he's widely regarded as one of the greatest rulers of all time. Foreign leaders, U.S. presidents, Alexander the Great himself, another great, they admired this man so much. I mean, you can read biographies of these men who are all pointing back to Cyrus the Great. But the question is, what made Cyrus great? What made Cyrus so great? People have asked this question. They look at his his projects, they look at his decrees, and they go, well, this made him great, this made him great. And the, the silliness is that right in front of them is Isaiah 45, 1 through 2. Now listen to what God says made Cyrus great. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. And so why is Cyrus the great? Why is Cyrus great? Because God calls him great. 
Because God has chosen to call him his anointed one. Now this term, the anointed one, is referred to as, as David is referred to. King David in the Old Testament is referred to as, as King David the Great, anointed one. The reason Cyrus is now known as Cyrus the Great is only because the Lord chose to make him great. Well, why does God do this? It's an interesting question. Why does God choose a pagan ruler, a pagan ruler who does not acknowledge him to save his people? Why would God do something like that? Once again, the answer is found in verses 4 through 5. I will strengthen you, God says, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, now catch this, people may know there is no one besides me. I'm going to strengthen you. You don't acknowledge me. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to make you great so that people will know there's none besides me. People will look at you and they'll look past you and they'll see me. That's what God says. And so God makes Cyrus great and he uses him to do great things for the Jewish people of the world so that we might know that God alone makes kings and rulers great. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. The proud king of Babylon. In Daniel 4.29, Nebuchadnezzar is walking the roof of the palace. He's looking out at Babylon, admiring how wonderful he is. And he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, what a self-obsessed moron. This guy is that you have to walk your palace and go, How great am I? I'm just incredible. Like, I'm just a wonderful person. Well, God says in the next part of the story, it's, look, it's a beast. No, it's a wolf. No, no, it's King Nebuchadnezzar. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. The great Nebuchadnezzar, who once walked his palace, is now reduced to a snarling beast of a man. A voice from heaven pronounces judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, and he says this, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, you will stay like this. I want you to think of other great rulers, of presidents and CEOs who work at burger joints, and great men who are brought low, who are humbled, of Nero, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, all of them brought low by the Most High God. God rules over the kingdom of men. He works through the kings and the rulers of this age. The psalm says he holds the heart of the king and he directs it like a river, like a stream in his hand. What about the Akkadians? or the Romans, or the Chinese dynasties, or the Mongols, the Ottoman, British Empire, all these wonderful dynasties, all these amazing empires have now fallen, have lost their power. God has brought them low, has humbled them. And now this is the part where we pause, and we humble ourselves, and we weep for America. Because God will bring us low if we do not humble ourselves, and turn and realize that He is God alone, And there is no other. Turn to me and be saved, he says, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Thirdly, God teaches the wise and the learned men of this world that he alone is God. If I took a poll of the room and I said, who are the great minds throughout history? Who who are the great minds throughout history? We'd probably get some of the same guys. We'd get like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Uh, You know, some of those philosophers, right? Spurgeon puts it this way. He, th- he says, if we go back in time to the days of these ancient philosophers, we would think they were gods among men. We would think they were the most learned. We would listen to them in awe and wonder. But then if we go 100 years past, we'd find new men who are rewriting what those men said. And if we go 100 years past those men, we'd find more rewriting, more debating. 
You see, each, each year, every, every few years, history books have to be rewritten. Every few years, science books have to be constantly rewritten because the wisdom of this age changes. It's changeable. And so man holds up their books of wisdom, and they say, this is our God. These are our idols. They do change. They, they morph to fit what we want. And we hold up the one book that's never changed. We hold up the one book with the God, the author, who's never changed. And we say, this is the wisdom. The Word of God, which is sharper than any double-edged sword, it alone has stood the test of time, and the authority is of truth and life and faith and practice. Romans 1, 21 through 23 speaks of the wise men of this world. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They became wise. They became fools in their wisdom. Lastly, God has taught and continues to teach the church, us, his bride, that he alone is God and there is no other. Sadly enough, the chief recipients of God's grace are often the ones that need to be reminded the most. That's true of my own heart. I need to constantly be reminded that he's God, I'm not God, and that he alone knows what he's doing. Prone to wonder, the hymn says, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I want you to think about Moses on the mountain, and he comes back down, and the people of God are worshiping an idol. That's how quickly, 40 days, and they're already worshiping an idol. So too will it be for many who call themselves Christians on that last day. It's one of the most harrowing verses in the whole Bible. Jesus says, they will come to me and he'll say, away with you, I never knew you. And that's because there are many who call themselves believers and they worship false gods. They worship a God who's not revealed in the Bible. They worship a God of their own making. He alone is God. There is no other. If we do not worship and acknowledge the God that is revealed to us in his holy word, which does not change, then we are making a God in our own image. One of the first lies, once again, from Satan was, did God really say? Did God really say that? And that same lie continues today. You'll hear it from all sorts of people. Well, did God really say that? Is that what the Bible really says? Is that, is that really what God said? How does God remind us? How does God remind us, his children, that he alone is God? Sometimes it's through correction. Sometimes God reminds his bride that he alone is God through correction, through illness, through sufferings, through trials. Samuel Rutherford once said that when he was cast into the cellars of affliction, he remembered that the great king always kept his best wine there. And Charles Spurgeon once said that they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up the rarest pearls. Christian, if you are in a season of hardship, I want you to remember that God is God alone. There is no other Turn and look to the cross. I want you to see the man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. He knows what you're going through. He was stricken in your place. This present suffering is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. It's utterly incomparable to the glories of seeing Jesus face to face. Christian, if you're in a deep season of depression, remember that God is God alone and he loves you and he's present And he's real, and he's going to use this. Whatever this is, he's going to use this, and he's going to bring good from it. He's going to teach you something through your hardship. 
Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline or lose heart when he rebukes you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises everyone he receives as a son. Endure suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons. And so we could look at illness or we could look at suffering. We could look at the hurricane as punishment. But that's not what the Bible says. It says it's actually, it's actually God treating us as children. Treating us as sons and daughters working through trials, working through suffering, working through illness to make us look more like Christ, to make us look more like Jesus. And so sometimes God shows his people, the bride of Christ, who he is through correction and discipline in order to remind us that he alone is God, there is no other, and that Jesus himself says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. By God's grace, may we rejoice in that. May God's grace, may we somehow find rejoice, the, the, the means to rejoice in suffering, to rejoice in trials, to take comfort in our adoption as sons and daughters of a loving king who corrects his children. He does not let us keep touching the fire, out, you know, the outlet. He does not let us keep touching the fire. He corrects us. He's the potter. We are the clay. In all things, may God be praised. So all of that was the first main point, and I promise that the next point is much shorter. The second big point from this passage is how God teaches us that he is God and there is no other through his greatest work, his masterful plan of redemption. First thing from notice from this passage is how we are to be saved. We must turn to him. We must turn to him. We must look to him to be saved. God says this. He says, look to me and be saved. And our sinful heart says, no, no, no. Look to yourself and be saved. Look to your trainer and be saved. Look to your priests to be saved. Look to your bank account, your government. Look to your portfolio. Look to your good works and be saved. And God says, no. God says, look to me and be saved. Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Turn to Christ. Look to Jesus. See his pierced hands and his feet See his stripe back. Do you think of the gore of the cross? The excruciating pain of the cross and what Jesus has done for you. Friends, there is no kinder Savior. You will find no kinder Savior than Jesus Christ if you will but turn and look to him. One of the most difficult things for us to do as humans is simply to do this. is to turn away from ourselves and look to God. We invented selfies. Right? We, see a, we see a beautiful butterfly and we think the only thing that would make this beautiful butterfly better is me in the picture. Oh, the Grand Canyon. This is, you know, it's like, you're ruining the photo. Get out of it. Get out of it. But this is what we do. We look to ourselves. We constantly look to ourselves. We do this physically. We do it spiritually. Once again, Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, we think, I do not pray enough to be accepted. He says, this is looking to yourself. I don't read my Bible enough. This is looking to yourself. I'm unworthy to turn and look to God. This is looking to yourself. I can't find righteousness in my heart that I should even turn. I can't can't even look to Him. He would not accept me. That's looking to yourself. The only fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. So turn and look. 
But still that voice inside, and you know the one I'm talking about, that voice inside of guilt and shame says, no, 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 you must look to yourself. You can do this. It's prideful. I can look to myself. Beloved, if you look to yourself, you'll be damned. If you look to yourself, if you appear before Christ on your own merits, on your own good works, and you say, I look to myself, I did this, look, at, look what I've done, he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. Look to Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Those who come to Christ boasting in their own righteousness will be turned aside. For the healthy don't need a physician. But the sick and the poor and the wretched sinners among us, they joyfully come. They joyfully come. It's why you're here today. Because you came for healing. Because you came to the hospital You came in need of the great physician. You cast your eyes upon the cross. You gaze upon the face of Jesus. Why? Because he alone is God and there is no other. This verse, Isaiah 45, 22, it's so small. And yet, like I said, it's a doozy. It's a doozy because it's the gospel message in its simplest form. The gospel is a call really in itself to turn. It's just a a call to turn and look. It's a call to turn away from yourself and turn to something outside of you, to turn to Christ. Which leads us to our second subpoint. God shows us his marvelous redemption through the simplicity of the gospel call. Just how simple the gospel really is. The gospel call is this look. The gospel call is this turn. I have heard many adults and teens say, I'm too nervous. I don't know all the answers. I, I couldn't possibly share my faith. I couldn't possibly evangelize. I couldn't do this. I don't know the answers. I don't. Can you say turn? Can you tell them to look? Can you, can you show them how to, how to find it in the Bible? Can you say, look to Christ, turn to Christ, turn, turn away from yourself, turn away from your sin, repent and believe? Can you say that? You'll say, you'll say I, I can't do it alone, and, and you're right. If you do look to yourself, you will screw it up. But if you look to Christ and your eyes are fixed on him, you will share the gospel with everybody who you come in contact with. You won't be able to keep it in. Sinners who are called by God, who are burdened by their sin and their guilt, they hear this message of turn and look, and they rejoice. But those who are righteous in their own eyes, they say, give me charts, give me graphs, give me a 10-step program, give me books, give me, give me tasks to do. Let me earn my way into heaven. I, I can do it. It's too simple. It's too good to be true that God would love me and would die for me and save me from my sins. Give me something to work for. When my three-year-old son, my four-year-old son, uh, falls and hurts himself, the first thing I do, he has tears in his eyes and he can't see anything, and I go, turn to daddy, turn to daddy, turn, look to me, look to daddy. And he goes, ah, he's freaking out. And I go, turn to daddy, turn to daddy, because I have my grip on him. I have my grip, and he just needs to look to me. He needs to let me assess the problem. He needs to, even if he can't see me, he can't see me clearly, but that act of turning, that act of faith, where he turns to me and says, I know I, know I can't see my dad right now, but he's going to help me. Whatever's in my eyes, whatever's happening, he's going he's to assess the situation. And so we turn and we look at God and, and we don't always see him, but we turn and he has his grip on us. He has us. And we go, where is God in this? I can't see him. But we feel him. He holds us. And there are times where our eyes are clear and we can see him clearly and other days when it's hard to see him, but he has us. It's, it's not my son's gaze on me. It's my gaze on him that matters. It's not his grip on me. It's my grip on my son that matters. Christian, you will, 
you will feel like you have lost your grip on, on God, he never loses you. He never loses sight of those whom he loves. Four letters. Do you hear it? Turn. Look. Some men want volumes of books to explain what God says in four letters. Turn and look. Uh, I'll leave you with this story. My wife and I did this thing when we were getting, when we were married, uh, well, we were getting married, and it was our wedding day, and it was this thing called First Looks, and I'm sort of traditional, I don't believe in seeing the bride, you know, before the wedding, and you just want to see her going, but she said, no, no, this thing called First Looks, you get a photographer, and it's just you and the husband, and you just take a photo real quick before the wedding, before you walk down, it's really magical, and I was like, all right, well, I'll do what you want, you know, I might as well give in on this, you know, start the marriage off right. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm staring at the photographer right in front of me, and I know Ashley's supposed to walk down and meet me, and I'm looking at the photographer's face, and all of a sudden she goes, and she starts smiling because she's seeing Ashley, and I go, what's she looking at? What's she seeing? And, and I'm waiting, I'm in anticipation, I just can't stop, you know, I'm shaking, I'm like, I'm so nervous, you know, if you've been there, and she goes, turn, turn, look. And I turn, <laughs> And I see the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I'm so thankful for that first look. I'm thankful for the photographer. I built up that expectation. I built up that joy. And she says, look, turn. That's us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He looks at us like the photographer. He says, if you would turn, turn and look. Turn and look because right behind you, it's the most glorious thing you'll ever see. Jesus Christ himself is the most glorious thing you'll ever see in this life. Lastly, lastly, God shows that he alone is God and there is no other by those whom he calls to look. Do you think it odd in the Bible that God calls Cyrus the great? Do you think it's odd in the Bible that God calls a prostitute named Rahab? Do you think it odd in the Bible that he has a shepherd boy kill a giant or a virgin give birth to the, to the king of this world? Do you think it odd that a murderer named Saul would be the missionary to the Gentiles? Does that seem odd to you? All throughout Scripture, God specifically calls the weak and the, the foolishness of this world, the foolish people, the, the things that the world would never look at. Fishermen? Fishermen? For your disciples? What are you doing? A tax collector? What's happening? God calls the foolish things of this world, and he says, no, these are my people. They're going to turn, and they're going to look, and they're going to be saved. And now here he calls all people, all colors, all creeds, all types, all languages, all people, all the ends of the earth. He says, turn and look and be saved, and know that I alone in God, in-laws, outlaws, fast, slow, all the ends of the earth. That's why the gospel is good news. That's why it's such good news. It's good news for the remotest tribe in Africa. It's good news for the homeschool family down the street. It's good news for boys and girls and old and young. It's good news. For some, it's actually horrible news. The Jew would have heard this and would have thought, surely Isaiah meant only the Jews should turn and look. But God says all the ends of the earth. Some people will say, well, surely God only meant uh, uh, Americans or Republicans or Democrats should look. And, and No, 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 all the ends of the earth, all the ends of the earth should turn and look and be saved. We know that one day this will happen. We know that all the ends of the earth will indeed turn and look. Romans fourteen eleven says, it is written, 
And he says, it is written because whatever is written is true. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. There is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, either willingly in reverence or forcibly in judgment. Every knee will bow. Until that day we go forth. Until that day we take, we take this glorious message of salvation and we go to all the ends of the earth and we share the good news message. We, we, we fulfill the great commission. We send out missionaries. We go and we tell all the ends of the earth that there is one God and one alone. I pray that you take this verse as an encouragement today. Both for those who turn to Christ. You remember that first look? Do you remember that first look, how that felt? Would you, would you remember that again today? Would you fall back in love? And for those who have never had that first look, who have never turned to Christ, who have, had, who have sat in this pew for years, who have heard the Holy Spirit saying, turn and look, turn and look, and be saved. If you would but fix your eyes on Christ, if you would but turn from yourself, repent and believe today, you could walk out of this room a new person. You don't have to to run from death another day. You can have life and life eternal. Hear the word of the Lord. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other.